Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, a mechanistic explanation of renal benefit. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. In this episode, Dr. Vivian Fonseca and Dr. George Bakris will be discussing SGLT2 inhibitors and their role beyond glycemic control. What are the mechanisms and renal benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors one. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Fonseca is the Assistant Dean for Clinical Research and Professor of Medicine, as well as the Tullus Tulane Alumni Chair in Diabetes at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, where he is also Chief of the Section of Endocrinology. Dr. Bakris is a Professor of Medicine and Director of the American Heart Association's Comprehensive Hypertension Center at the University of Chicago Medicine. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Fonseca will begin our discussion. Hello, and welcome to this program, Beyond Glycemic Control, Mechanisms and Renal Benefit of SGLT2 Inhibition. This is our first podcast. My name is Vivian Fonseca. I'm from Tulane University in New Orleans, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. George Bakris from the University of Chicago. Welcome, George. Thank you, Vivian. So let's start by talking a little bit about diabetes. Uh, you know, they, it's a major problem around the world today, and it's characterized by complications. And one of the most serious and very expensive complication is kidney damage with end-stage chronic kidney disease. And uh, But not everybody gets it. And so, George, what is your perspective from a nephrology point of view on the potential for somebody with uh, diabetes to get chronic kidney disease? Well, if you look at the statistics, first of all, you're totally correct, Vivian. It is an epidemic. And in fact, there are going to be more than double the number of patients on dialysis in 2030 compared to 2010. And that is a lot of people. And interestingly, the people that are having the biggest problem are the people in Asia, specifically Taiwan. And there's no clear reason for why they're having this issue. But as you correctly point out, not everybody with diabetes develops kidney disease. Part of that is because they die before they've had enough time to develop it. But the other part of it is if you actually look at people and correct for longevity, about 40% of people with diabetes are gonna develop kidney disease. Why do they develop it and not everybody develops it? Well, first is a genetic predisposition. Usually these people have a history of kidney disease in the family. The second is long histories of poor glycemic and blood pressure control, which clearly will predispose you, even if you don't have high risk to developing kidney disease. And so really the key here is prevention, not treatment on the back end, but prevention on the front lines. And when you say prevention, do you mean any kidney disease or is it prevention of end-stage chronic kidney disease? No, I'm, I'm talking about slowing kidney disease progression right, okay. and ultimately preventing uh, or staving off 
providing a long time before you develop end-stage kidney disease. So one of the features of prevention is good glycemic control, obviously. And the sooner we start with that, the better. And also in terms of kidney disease, good control of blood pressure. I'm, I'm sure you will agree with that. And, and unfortunately, both seem to be a little elusive in the overall diabetes population. So it's nice that we now are focusing on medications that might help with both, uh, both the problems if used uh, appropriately. Absolutely. And let me just add that um, the most recent guidelines from the American Diabetes Association strongly recommends blood pressures of less than 130, strongly recommends glycemic control, and this is very early on. And lastly, and as importantly, there's some evidence to suggest, at least from a kidney standpoint, good lipid control is very important in terms of staving off the progression at least in people with GFRs between 60 and 30. Once you get below 30, there's not much you can do. I, I think the audience needs to understand that if we're talking about diabetes and kidney disease, the kidney disease is something that results from diabetes. And the reality is, if you think about it as adding gasoline to the fire, the fire is diabetes and poor glycemic control and poor blood pressure control is the gasoline being added to the fire. And the sooner you put the fire out, the more likely you are to preserve the house that you're in. What's happening now is the fire is on burning. And by the time they come to people like me, 80% of kidney function is lost or 70%. We cannot reverse that. This is irreversible. We need to stop the destruction before it gets too far, just like the fire. I, I agree with you, uh, but it's very easy to see that for people with GFR between, say, 30 and 60. It's the earlier patient in primary care who doesn't possibly take the disease very seriously. Right. And there's also been a lot of confusion in the guidelines. I'm glad you brought up the ADA guidelines because they and others shifted on blood pressure goals, 130, 140. I, I, I feel that hasn't really helped, you know, in this, well, because of lack of evidence. Well, let me, let me make a point. Let me make a point. I think that the point we were trying to make in the guidelines is if you're at 140 or higher, there is no question in anybody's mind that you're hypertensive. That's different than a treatment goal. And the treatment goal should be less than 130. So let's be clear on what it takes to jump in. That is not to say if you're 135, uh, you should not talk about lifestyle intervention. You should not talk about low-sodium diets. But to jump in with multiple medicines at 135 to 138, that's not necessarily the answer either. The problem is that uh, there, there's an additional problem, and I haven't mentioned it, and that is that primary care physicians are not telling the patients that they have kidney disease. In fact, there was a survey that was done nationwide. Only 46% of people with stage four CKD, that's a GFR, less than 30, actually knew they had kidney disease. That means more than half didn't know they had kidney disease and they lost 70% of their kidney function. Yeah, the, uh, well, let's come back to that, but that brings me to a very important point. How do you di diagnose chronic kidney disease, both in people with diabetes and those without diabetes? So th that's a very easy answer. You need to do two things. Number one, you need to measure serum creatinine and the lab will calculate an estimated GFR for you. And the second very important thing that is not being done is you need a spot urine albumin creatinine. 
and that spot albumin creatinine is part of the diagnostic criteria to actually tell you where you are. There are people spilling a lot of protein that have reasonable kidney function. That does not reduce the risk. The risk is actually quite high, but most physicians are missing that because they're not checking it. And there's a huge push right now by the National Kidney Foundation to get primary care physicians to routinely measure albuminuria at least annually, if not twice a year, in people with diabetes. Yeah, that's, that's a very important quality measure as part of the overall care. But let me get ask you about the GFR. You know, you've got the, unfortunately, you, have, you can have a GFR of 89 and be classified as having chronic kidney disease. And people tend to not pay enough attention because they're far, far away from dialysis. So in the, as people get into kind of denial, it's very easy to deny that you've got kidney disease. And I wish that wasn't, that cutoff for diagnosis wasn't made so high. So people took it more seriously when it's say 65 and you're getting to a point where it's a slippery slope to serious problems. Oh, Vivian, let me explain the rationale for that because this goes back now over a decade. When this was being put together initially, the concept was to uh, mimic uh, the oncologists and staging of lymphomas and cancer. And so there's a stage zero where you've got a problem, but we can deal with it. And then in addition to that, there's other staging that uh, goes along with that in terms of risk. So they decided to do it as a risk stratification and different stages. And so I think it's important that the audience understand that if you have stage two CKD, which is what 89 would be, I think the physician needs to tell the patient there are no symptoms of kidney disease. Many patients think, well, I'm peeing, so life is fine. There are people on dialysis that are peeing. It's the quality of the pee. And number two, so, so this is an asymptomatic disease, just like hypertension. People don't know they're hypertensive, they have a stroke. So they need this information, they need education, and they need to know that it's not yes or no, or we're going to you know, prevent this or not prevent this. It's slowing the progression down. It's educating the patient to work with you. That's what's critical. Yeah. Let me get back to the issue of microalbuminuria and sure. albuminuria. Uh, clearly, it's an important risk factor for not just kidney disease, but also heart disease and very important to do, and I do it routinely. But there are many people, and we, it, it also guides your treatment in terms of RAS blockade in the past. And many people who had a little microalbuminuria come down to almost zero or very little microalbuminuria, yet their chronic kidney disease seems to progress. And there are lots of people out there. What's the pathophysiology there? And is it different? Do they progress at a slower rate than people with a lot of proteinuria? Right. So uh, that excellent question. So if you have microalbuminuria, that does not necessarily mean that you have kidney disease, but what it does mean is that you have inflammation and microalbuminuria can be very diverse. It's the kidneys CRP. You have to pay attention to it because we now know your cardiovascular risk is elevated if you have microalbuminuria. You're more likely to die if you have a cardiovascular event if you have microalbuminuria. So the cardiologists now are starting to pay attention to this. The nephrologists before used to think you have microalbuminuria, boom, you've got kidney disease. Not true. But you have vascular inflammation, you're at risk for developing kidney disease. And as Vivian knows, 
bottom line is if you control glucose, if you control blood pressure, that gets much better. You're alleviating inflammation. You're reducing injury to the kidney. And so you need to view the kidney and the urine as providing a lot of information that you're throwing away or ignoring by not measuring it. Yeah, so, so I, I just, let me just get to one other question relating to it. We should not ignore people who no longer have microalbuminuria if their GFR is continuing to fall and get, gets down to 50 or less. We've still got to pay attention to the fact they've got severe chronic kidney disease. So, so let me just say very quickly, if your GFR is below 60, make no mistake about it, those people clearly have kidney disease that you got to pay attention to, clearly need to be followed minimally annually, and blood pressure, glucose, and lipids need to be aggressively managed just like you would for cardiovascular risk reduction. And you got to tell the patient what's going on. That's very important. But, uh, you know, you could also flip that around. Is it feasible to, or possible to tell people whose GFR is in the 70s and 80s? Well, you know, you've got, you're classified as chronic kidney disease, but don't worry about it. No, I, I can tell you exactly because the patients ask me about that because I classify them. And I tell them, you have some kidney disease when you correct for your age. But let me tell you something. That does not mean that it's not a big deal. you got to control these risk factors to slow down the progression if there is even going to be progression. So you got to keep an eye on it. That's all I say. Very good. And, you know, let's move on to some of the treatments. Sure. I, I want briefly, let's recap where we are with the RAS blockade and then move on to some of the newer things that have come about. The SGLT2 inhibitors, a lot of excitement there. There's also some uh, new mineral corticoid uh, receptor antagonists. So could you very briefly talk to us about mechanisms? How are these all different? Do they work synergistically? You know, what's, what's the underlying pathophysiology being addressed? So that's a good question. SGLT2s were, because they were studying people with normal kidneys, were originally thought to be naturetic compounds where they dump glucose into the urine. And so, of course, glucose goes down and you lose some sodium. So blood pressure goes down a little bit. And that was it. We now know that that is true for a subset of patients. But the benefits span from a GFR of 25 where you're getting no glucose loss no sodium loss, and yet blood pressure still drops three and a half millimeters of mercury. And you're getting other benefits on the heart that have nothing to do with sodium or glucose. So there are multiple mechanisms. There's not one mechanism. There's no way we can integrate it yet. People are looking for that. But I think the point is that these drugs are anti-inflammatory. These drugs, and there's a lot of mechanisms there. They reduce oxidant stress. Um, independent of glycemic control. Um, they affect angiotensinogen expression. They are doing a number of things at the vascular level. There's some evidence that they improve nitric oxide uh, release. And how they're doing this is unclear. There's been a hypothesis put forth that they're affecting autophagy. That remains to be seen. So we're still in a very high investigational state. There have been multiple meetings on mechanisms of SGLD2. And people walking in thinking they knew, leave the meeting saying, we have no idea what's going on, but they're working. So it's being looked at in a very serious way at multiple levels. And we don't know. Now, that does not preclude us not using them. It simply means that we can't really nail that this is happening. But... The MRAs, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, 
We have spironolactone, but now we have a new set of non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Phenarinone is the one that has been most studied on renal outcomes. And this is a drug that is not your mother's spiro. It's very different. And it's a drug that reduces inflammation and reduces fibrosis in animal models. Interestingly, in the trial that was published in New England Journal in October, there was no blood pressure reduction that was significant, only two millimeters, even less than SGLT2s, no effect on glucose, and yet it reduced albuminuria to a similar extent as SGLT2s, and it reduced progression of kidney disease by a significant amount compared to standard of care, which included maximum doses of ACEs and ARBs. So is there synergy between the two? The clinical data is too sparse as yet, so we don't know. There's animal data that suggests that on fibrotic mechanisms, there is some synergy, certainly additivity on proteinuria reduction, and that remains to be seen clinically. Uh, before we move on, let's talk a little bit about some of the other diabetes medications. Do they have beneficial effects on the kidney, or is that all related to glucose lowering? You know, I'm talking about GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, right. EPP-4 inhibitors. There have been some claims there uh, over the years. Most of those effects to me look very minor, but uh, I'd like your perspective. No, no, you're, you're 100% correct. The GLP-1 RAs, um, you know, semaglutide, liraglutide, they definitely have some effects on albuminuria in people with advanced kidney disease. There is a commitment to study this by the company and there is a trial called the FLOW trial, which is ongoing right now, it's recruiting, and that is going to study semaglutide on CKD progression in, in diabetes. Um, there's some hope that based on analyses of the trials that have been done already in the subgroup of people with CKD, that it's gonna be beneficial, remains to be seen, but people are optimistic. The other drugs, the DPP-4 is metformin, everything, I would say to, to use a New York phrase, forget about it. Uh, they're really not doing anything. Controlling glucose is fine, but we're done. They really aren't doing anything specific. But, but George, let me get argue with you a little bit on this. Sure. You know, we we tend to be dismissive about modest changes in what we do, in, like take blood pressure for example. Three, four millimeters of mercury, people think is not a lot, but day in, day out, over five years, I I don't know. You don't have a good way of quantifying overall exposure over a long period of time, which if you look at the same with glycemia, relatively modest reduction over a long period of time might have as much, if possibly even better impact than reducing it for a few days. Vivian, I, I could not agree more. In fact, we just, there's an editorial coming out in Jack. Uh, there's a large study that looked at time in blood pressure range, and it clearly shows that the greater the time in a blood pressure range, the better your outcome, independent of what you see at one point in time, fits beautifully with what you're talking about. And I'm sure that's true for glucose, as well as blood pressure, and probably lipids as well. And, and so I think it's important for the patient to understand that, because many patients don't like taking a lot of medicines. They'll take two pills one day, one pill the next, maybe all of them one day, and they think it's okay, because they're doing something. That could not be farther from the truth. And I think it, this is an important point that you brought up. Uh, you know, people often say, well, you, know, you tell them your blood pressure is high, and they say, well, it's white coat hypertension, doc. You told me this, or your, your partner told me this. And otherwise, I'm great. 
And I try to tell them we all have stress in our lives all the time, not just when we go to the doctor's office and you don't know what your blood pressure is at that time. It's probably sky high. Uh, any thoughts on, on that? And there's no question. Uh, you know, just, to, just to expand on what you said, this time in range has become a big, nice concept with glycemic monitoring now that we can do it. I yeah. wish there were a better way to do this for blood pressure and when we look at overall control over, over time. Well, the, the data that's been published so far relies heavily on home blood pressures. But home blood pressures, if they're done correctly and the patient is taught, are as good, and this is published as well, as daytime ambulatory blood pressures. So I think we, we will have at least not as good as glycemic control because you have a specific mechanism, but something that is reasonable as long as the patient understands what they're doing uh, with this. But I, I think it's, it's critically important the patient understand that this is in fact time and range. And you're right, in fact, there are data that three and a half, four millimeter mercury differences may not sound like a lot, but it's huge. And a lot of people with white coat hypertension also have mass hypertension, meaning they're going home, they're anxious, their blood pressures are up, nobody's measuring it, nobody knows. And it's a major problem. And that has an incidence of cardiovascular risk that is similar to untreated hypertension. Do you think SGLT2 inhibitors are helping that by excreting, by keeping the blood pressure down all the time, like they do with glucose? They're pretty flat curves. And, you know, we, we, we tried to do an assessment and published in Diabetes Care using a, a, a risk engine where we explain a lot of these findings just based on the fact that you're doing it all the time, just like time and range with, with glucose. Let me uh, ask one last thing that I think sure. is important in mechanisms, and that's salt intake. As you know, I live in the South where we love our salt, and we, we eat a lot of it. And, uh, you know, how much does that contribute? And is the salt excretion from the SGLT2 inhibitors and also the GLP-1 receptor agonists important in the mechanism of action? So there's no question, very briefly, we've known for half a century at least that sodium contributes to elevations in blood pressure and poor hypertension control. We also know, and we've known this for 40, 50 years, that if you reduce the amount of salt today, per day to one level teaspoon, that the changes in blood pressure will be minimized. And you can even go to 1500 milligrams it's an additional two millimeter mercury benefit that you're going to get. A lot of people don't want to compromise on that, and that's fine. But at least two grams a day of sodium, which is roughly a level two teaspoon, will protect you from this. Unfortunately, the average American diet is two, two and a half times that. So it's a problem. Now, the SGLT2s, if you have normal kidneys, sure, it's helping. Once you get down to GFRs of 40 or 30, blood pressure is still being reduced, but it's not because of sodium. It's other mechanisms. In fact, there's evidence to suggest renal denervation. Um, SGLT2s mimic renal denervation. It's a beautiful study published in January last year in an animal model that shows it impeccably. So, so to get back, you, you think that there are multiple uh, uh, effects of these drugs that we don't fully understand, something almost magical about it. Uh, 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 but they do do things that we all understand. I mean, they lower glucose and they lower blood pressure. Right. To me, uh, you know, from a simplistic point of view, that's not a bad thing 
And what, what matters is the end result, your patient getting better. And we're going to look at that in the next podcast. We're going to talk about what, what happened in the clinical trials uh, with, these, with these medications. Let me just finish, uh, Vivian, let me just finish with this comment, which I put in print. These drugs are cardiorenal risk-reducing agents irrespective of glycemic control because we've seen it in non-diabetics. We're going to talk about it. We've seen it in heart failure. So I think it's important to understand this is not your mother's glucose-lowering pill. It's far beyond that. And are there, is there any differences between drugs? Do you think, you know, some have SGLT1 inhibition and some people claim that that's better? Do you think that that affects, or is problem, it because it's the, not in the kidney, it's not important? The problem is we do have a, a recently published trial with sodigaflozin, which is both SGLT1 and SGLT2. And the bad news is that SGLT1 inhibition definitely could be doing something in the gut, definitely could be doing something in the heart, and even in the kidney. Unfortunately, the trial was stopped early because of financial issues. And so we really, other than the cardiovascular data, don't have a lot of good data to hang our head on, which is very unfortunate because it does need to be explored more. Uh, there was one other trial with Tugliflozin that didn't quite show as spectacular benefit. And we'll come back to the details of the trials, but you, I, what I'm getting at here is there are differences in mechanisms of yeah, I think, no. I think if you take the SGLT2s together as a package, I think it's a class effect. And this has been argued from the podium. Um, but I think if you take the totality of data, I really do think it's a class effect. And, and I know others like Mark Cooper think it's a class effect. So that would be my take on it. Well, George, I want to thank you for that excellent discussion about going beyond glycemic control uh, for benefiting the kidney and the various mechanisms of some of these new agents that have come in. Uh, I'd like to invite everybody to our next podcast where we will be discussing the specific data on, uh, as seen in clinical trials, showing these benefits, particularly on the kidney, uh, as well as cardiac benefits. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors one to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other endocrinology podcasts, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endocrinology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits.